Hello and welcome to another episode of the Creative Weirdos. Sorry for the slight delay in this one. I meant to get it edited and up yesterday, but I'm still running a little behind from family vacation. We had a wonderful time at the beach and it was uh, probably the best time I've seen the kids have on a family vacation yet, which is wonderful. I'm exhausted from it, which I think just is appropriate at this point. But today I am so excited to share this conversation with my new friend Jason of the Esoteric Book Club. We talk about everything from how to properly read and ingest books, uh, if there is a proper way, but the beauty and the magic of reading books and, and ingesting these physical objects that are manifested from these ideas where we don't really know where it comes from and how special that is, as well as Jason's fascination with history and a ton of other things. Jason is a super well-read, very intelligent and thoughtful and kind person with a podcast called The Esoteric Book Club that I've linked below and you should definitely go check out, as well as his several appearances on Vuk's Tracing Owl show. But for now, enjoy this conversation and I'll be talking to you all soon. Bye! <laughs> I've been using but, this for several years. Yeah, yeah. You've been doing that for a while. Like, I'm slowly working through your catalog, starting with the newest stuff. So I'm kind of like, Ooh. I have a lot to kind of go through. But it's it's been a really fun ride so far. But So if you're going backwards, get... you get to listen to it all degrading quality. <laughs> I never think about it like that, but that's definitely that's a creator's viewpoint right there. I'll tell you, because <laughs> it's it, it. I consumer wise, I'm only I'm probably like I think twenty five or twenty eight. I think I'm on twenty eight right now, going from the newest to the to the oldest, right? Hmm. And uh, and it, no no change in quality that I can pick up on at all. Like I, it's one of those things that I think you hear more than when you're making the stuff. I hear it all the time in my stuff. I'm like, oh man, well. This is, just wait till you get to episode like one or two. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's very fair. Well, before we start talking about the podcast, let's go back to what we were just uh, talking about before I hit record. I'll do a proper introduction and all that fun stuff uh, before the regular podcast. But we were just talking about how you have a degree in local history uh, from your hometown, Morgantown, West Virginia. And I'd love to hear more about that and like where, what, how you're applying it with your current job, what got you into it, anything you want to talk about with it. Oh, sure, sure. Well, before we get started on that, I was talking to Vuk earlier, and he was like, hey, you're going on Todd's show tonight, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to talk to him. He's like, you should call him a potato. <laughs> I'm like, Vuk, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Although it would be really funny to call him a baked potato. That that would be pretty good. <laughs> uh, thank you for starting it like that. That's beautiful. <laughs> I I am so glad that you asked the origin. Was it you who asked the origin of the potatoes in oh, the yeah. group conversation? Yeah, no, that was wonderful because I've been wondering for a while. But sometimes I just like I don't know if I'm going to like the answer from Vuk, so I don't ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love him. I'm glad you did. It was a it was the exact appropriate answer. <laughs> But yeah, so I grew up here in Morgantown, West Virginia, and I ended up going to school at West Virginia University, which is our local mm -hmm. university. I started out, I did a full year of art school. And 
leading up to college, I had zero interest in history because, you know, public education history is literally just memorization. Yeah. It's, you know, here's this major event. It happened at this time with these people, you know, remember this and that's it. (laughs) But I took a few, I actually took Native American history in college. And that's when I realized when you get to a higher level, it's all just stories. Mm, Yeah, that's the good stuff. Yeah. And that was what I was after. You know, I wanted to know how it affected the everyday person. Yeah. Was there a story that hooked you? Like, was there one that sticks out to you being like, that was the one that made me want to uh, kind of go down this road? Not really. No, because again, it's just the stories of the everyday people. So it, uh, it, yeah, no, it's when it's all said and done, it's very mundane, but mm-hmm. it's something you can relate to on a personal level. Yeah, no, absolutely. Did you have, so you, you had no interest in history growing up, obviously, from what you just said, but you had an interest in art. You were a maker. You were creating mm-hmm. things. Like, what were you going to art school for? I was actually going to school for illustration. Awesome. And at the time, the program was basically more of a a varied arts degree so it was very good to get an experience with different mediums and different artistic techniques but you know you still had three more years where it was just it felt a lot like filler classes yeah and or you could go into graphic design which at the time there were 15 total spots because the university only had 15 computers available so that was super competitive, and I definitely yeah. was not getting the best uh, portfolio reviews. So I decided I should probably refocus my efforts. That's that's very fair. That's very. Did you grow up wanting to be an artist? Was that something that you always wanted to do, or is that just like you got to college and you're like, this seems like a good thing to do? I found a mix when I went to art school where people were like, I didn't know what to do, so I just went to art school, and then people were like, no, this is what I've wanted to do since day one. Art was my second choice next yeah. to paleontology. Oh, whoa, that's awesome. Were you Jurassic Park kid? Is that is that where, where the interest came from? Or Way before Jurassic Park. I do remember going to Jurassic Park in the theaters, and I was like in fifth grade. Oh, that's awesome. And so you're I already way it. dinosaur face. The dinosaur thing has existed for so long. And it's one of those things that even looking back, I've been on a real big kick of like 40s and 50s golden age comics. Mm. And the amount of dinosaur, absurd dinosaur stories in those comics is like my favorite thing in the world right now. <laughs> yeah, but I was a, a super nerdy kid. So even before Jurassic Park, I was fanboying over Dr. Robert, yeah, Dr. Robert Bacher. Okay. Who is still a fairly famous scientist. Uh, enough so that, like, as an adult, I tracked down the first edition of his book. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So but at the time, were... when he wrote that in the 70s, it was super cutting edge because he was proposing that, yeah, some of these dinosaurs may have been warm blooded. They may have had feathers. They may have had these weird anatomical quirks that we are now finding in the fossil record to be absolutely true. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So that was your number one. Like that was what you wanted to do growing up paleontologist. Like, did you take steps in that direction? Not really. There's nothing really available for that in West Virginia. 
because the Appalachian Mountains, where we are, they're so old that the stone that is exposed to the surface is older than dinosaurs. Whoa. So we won't find any <laughs> dinosaur fossils here. What I was finding growing up, because uh, where I lived, there was an old coal mine. And then when you have old coal mines, you have a lot of slate dumps and, and leftover slag and things like that. Well, I could dig through the slate and find fern fossils. Whoa, and these were really perfectly cool. preserved ferns. You could see every vein and every little leaflet, and they just stood out so vibrantly. That's amazing. That's really that's something that I've never really had a had a chance to think about with how old like how old where you are is. That's amazing, and yeah. having like a symbol from nature to hold and represent that that's so beautiful did you like once you made that transition to getting into history and getting into these stories like did it kind of reignite your your interest in paleontology and like the physical side of things like did that kind of did the two go hand in hand at all no i don't think it really did it kind of shifted more to archaeology Oh, okay. And it, just because I am bad with words sometimes, and I know they're more important than I, than I give them credit, archaeologists, paleontologists, can you explain the difference? <laughs> so paleontology is basically ancient life forms other than humans, mm -hmm. whereas archaeology tends to deal with humans and human materials that are left behind, things like that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Then that would be uh, much more associated with the stories that you're interested in and yeah, know, all yeah. of that. Do, do you, uh, so once you got into that, were you like directly into local history or did you get to kind of uh, play around with bigger history, American history, world history? Or did you just automatically like hyper focus into West Virginia? I vaguely specialized in a time period which was early colonization and then okay. i focused on regional stuff so oh, cool. the mid ohio valley so that's a, a west virginia northern west virginia which was virginia at the time pennsylvania and a little bit of ohio oh, and cool. it was the interaction specifically between the native tribes and the colonists who were coming here and some of the people who were displaced and forced to live here which that's a whole story in itself. Yeah, no, I can imagine. <laughs> that's a that's a big story. And, and this whole time, were you into the weird stuff? Like, where did your interest in the uh, in whether it's the paranormal or the esoteric or this type of thing come in? Like, is that something that's been lifelong or? Pretty much, I man, I was telling uh, Barbara this on Six Degrees of John Keel that my interest in the paranormal started with a coloring book. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I remember specifically that there was a page for the Flatwoods monster and it had, a, it was just a picture. It was like a, a little green hill, like a, like a baseball mound more than anything. So that's how they represented, you know, West Virginia mountains was a, a pitcher's mound. <laughs> And then it had three kids in like 1950s style clean cut shirts and everything, which again is definitely not West Virginia at that time period. And they were running down the hill away from this thing that looked like a reptilian that was positioned like a Macy's Day float. 
amazing. And it was, was terrible. <laughs> that was yeah, my introduction, yeah. and it had nothing, no, no basis in reality for the Flatwoods monster besides mentioning that that's where it took place. Yeah, yeah, super fast. And then that was enough to to get you into monsters and stuff like that. And did yeah. you? Uh, yeah, and you have so much locally, obviously, to uh, to kind of dig into. Is that where you started with it all? Hmm. That's kind of a loaded question. I so <laughs> the, the the coloring book, I remember the Flatwoods Monster because it was local. But the reason I had that coloring book is because on the cover it had Nessie. Ooh, and if you're okay. a kid who enjoys dinosaurs, you're going to say. be drawn directly to the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a thread that is definitely very popular with, you know, a certain age group of people that got into this stuff. Like the, that oh, yeah. connection from Dinosaur Kid to, to Nessie is very direct. And I mean, I just love how Nessie is so it's so perfect to uh, as a metaphor for getting deeper into the weird stuff because there's so much weird tied to it. And there's so you can go so many different ways with it. Yeah. And the the animals that they propose as being Nessie during some of the, the photos and the sightings, like the most recent thing I saw was that they're saying it was a fresh, a pod of freshwater eels. (laughs) And it's like, okay, I can kind of see that, but you know, they don't really come out of the water that much. Yeah. That would be pretty impressive. Like, I don't know. There's, something to those stretches of trying to explain things in that mundane way that just makes it seem like i mean even if that was the case it would just be as magical as if it being a leftover dinosaur and interdimensional you know like i'm okay with (laughs) if there's a bunch of eels that are like getting them wrapping themselves together to make that neck form out of it like that's cool (laughs) with me I, I, i like that picture too i once heard that we repopulated certain uh parts of the of america with beaver by dropping them out of helicopters because they couldn't oh, the spaces man. they needed to be, go couldn't be reached without like air air travel so i just like to picture that there was a large amount of ufo sightings that were just <laughs> you know beavers falling from skies and parachutes and that that, that makes me happy <laughs> i hadn't heard the one about beavers but i know they did airdrop turkeys in parts of west virginia amazing like could you imagine seeing an airdrop turkey falling from the sky like i would definitely be like yep thunderbird that's it i'm I'm out (laughs) and they're so awkward when they fly because they don't really fly they just glide i don't i've only seen them like jump into trees kind of you know that's the most Mm -hmm. closest i've seen them try and take off or jump out of trees which is really uh horrifying in a certain way yeah (laughs) well i was talking to someone about this earlier in the week we have because we have all these hills and mountains the turkeys will roost in the trees on top of the hill and then they will glide down in the morning. But sometimes when they do that, they glide across the interstate. Whoa, really? Yeah. So you're driving by and you just have a turkey buzz your car. Whoa, that is scary and not good for the turkey or the car. (laughs) No. Oh man. Do you have lots of interactions with wildlife these days? Yeah, quite a bit. And that's I, part of that is my job. I'm an outdoor educator, so I am literally outside every day, hiking through the woods, working in a garden, something along those lines. So I just keep my eyes open and see what's there. That's awesome. Was that a purposeful uh, choice to take that job? Like, did you want to be working outside and be, be oh, in yeah. nature a lot more? Yeah, that's absolutely. What, was that a lifelong thing? Were you an out- outdoors kid growing up? I know you mentioned you were a nerdy kid, but were you also uh, one that wanted to be outside a lot or was that a later in life thing? 
So growing up, this is very strange. I was a nerdy kid, but I lived outside in the middle of nowhere on this old farm. And <laughs> I had no neighbors, so I didn't really have a choice. I went outside with my brother and we built stick forts and we went fishing and, you know, we just had to entertain ourselves however we could for the longest time. The only, I mean, our television got literally three channels <laughs> and one of those was PBS luckily, but you know, the other two were just basically at that time, they were clones of each other and there was nothing to watch on TV. Yeah. And the only video game system we had was an old Atari system. Not going to have much to entertain yourselves. So you would just go out and do the do the outside thing. But you got to do the nerd thing, too. Like that. Mm -hmm. That's so cool, because I think there's that's a lot of people's stories that don't get like people hear nerd and think inside kid and things like that. But there's so much more where I think there's that kind of hybrid that's really special. And yeah, yeah that's awesome. That's and it seems like it like, you know, I've been going through your episodes and I love the way that they're almost like these impassioned book reports like they're these like you know very very well thought out and explained and like when you're describing the books it's nice because you're kind of picking like one of the questions i wanted to ask you is how you kind of curate the sh parts you're sharing on the episode because you seem really good at picking out the stuff that like uh, hits really like resonates and and whatnot and like i feel like uh, this is a weird connection but i feel like that's connected to that like hybrid kid that like is out like you've lived and like you have that like uh kind of paradox and you're you're of both worlds and that comes through when you're talking about these especially like the esoteric books that i've listened to some people talk about some of the stuff you've covered and just have to turn it off because it's just too dry or too oh yeah the way it's being presented is just it doesn't hit doesn't resonate so i don't know there's something to that for me i feel like <laughs> that so that some made of sense that in my brain some of that goes back to my college days because being in history one of the ways you can apply history to a job is through uh, historic interpretation where you dress okay. up in costume and you <laughs> relate history to someone as if you are in that time period. And I did that for quite a while. That's and that awesome. was actually one of my first jobs. Uh, I had an internship at Fort Necessity my freshman year of college. That's so cool. And that also got me into doing different art mediums such as uh, leather work and beadwork and quill work, which is a uh, historic decorating technique using porcupine quills, which I don't Whoa. have the manual dexterity to do anymore. That but, sounds intense. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. These things are so tiny. And what you do is you lay down a thread and you basically fold the porcupine quill over top of that thread. And then you make a stitch and you fold the porcupine quill back in the other direction and you make this zigzag pattern back and forth for a single wow. line. It's That's super amazing. labor intensive, but it's beautiful when it's done. That's amazing. Do you still make stuff? Do you still like, do you still execute things like this? I mean, it sounds like you are, you know, a very creative person in a lot of ways besides just what you're uh, sharing with the podcast. What, what do you <laughs> like to make? What do you like to make these days? Oh, man, I've really gotten back into just basic sketching and converting that into digital art. That's awesome. I used to do a lot of leather work, but uh, a multiple multiple things caused me to stop doing that. One of them was the cost of leather. The raw material got so crazy high that I just I couldn't sell my uh, finished 
product for enough to justify purchasing the material up front. Yeah. Uh, and it's one sense. of those weird, it's an art medium where you have to invest a lot of money up front for the materials and then hope someone buys what you, what you make. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a big, big difference between just having a pen of paper, a pad of paper and a pencil and being able to, to go at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, well, let's see, we were talking about, Oh, Oh, right. How, uh, on the show, how I go about picking out certain parts of the books yes. to explain. So I was talking about how, uh, the background comes from historic interpretation. It's conveying information as succinctly and directly, but also as entertainingly as possible. Yeah. Entertainingly. Is that a word? I think that's a word. I'm, I'm taking it. That's a word. We're, we're going to go with it. <laughs> uh, so, so that actually ended up working in favor for, uh, my, my job as an outdoor educator too. And again, I had experience through a historic interpretation because we had school groups that would come through. So I'd have this block of information that I had to convey to different age groups and people with different life experiences. And it's figuring out how to apply that same bit of information in a way that that group can understand and appreciate. Yeah. So I use that in my podcast too. I go through a book and I say, okay, first of all, which, which parts of this are entertaining? Because yeah. that's the ones I want to use to, to just keep people listening. I don't want them to turn the podcast off, like you said. But I also want to get the, the theme of the book sent out. And totally. again, that's picking and choosing. It's, it's like making a collage, you know? You're taking the aspects that you need to convey the whole picture, even though that little piece that you cut out of a magazine isn't necessarily the a good representation of the whole, but it yeah. serves its purpose. Absolutely. And that's a skill on its own. That curation is like something that I find is, you know, it's it, you have to be intentional with it, which is very important, especially when dealing with like big subjects like some of the books that you're covering are covering not only like large subject matters but large spans of time and large mm -hmm. like lots of lots of big things to connect and uh, yeah that's a it's a big feat Have, do you ever get into a book that you intend on using for the show and you're like nope not this one like this isn't going to work out or do you uh do, are you a little bit do you know what's going to work at this point <laughs> that's it's happened twice uh, so one time somebody lent me a book on lucid dreaming okay, and I got maybe two chapters into the book and it was, the author was talking about how he was sexually abused as a child. And I was like, Nope, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Can't use this. Nope. I just honestly just fair. didn't want to complete the nope. book at that point. Nope. It's, it's too much trauma. I work yeah. with children. I don't want to read about that. No, that's um, very fair. Yeah. That is a, that's a good reason to bow out. And the other one was, um, I talked about it on the show and I was very vague. I'm not going to mention the author, but the subject, it was a Bigfoot book and it was talking about giants and it got into that pseudo religious aspect in some parts, but yeah. honestly, just overall, the book was not well written. It was yeah. terrible. It was painful to read. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. Do you, 
Do you have a preference at this point between like paranormal or esoteric books that you're getting into? Like, you know, you, you've covered a good mix of both of them on the show, but at this point or at this stage in your life, is there something that attracts you to one more than the other? No. And that's why there is a mix. It's to keep me from being bored. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think my listeners appreciate that too. They get, yeah. you know, one month they get magic and the next month they learn about some weird cryptid out in the middle of nowhere. No, absolutely. It's it's definitely it's nice to keep it varied like that. I go through times of of listening to different things, and I mentioned recently on the podcast I've been listening to a lot less of weird and paranormal, a lot more of like I listen to lots of comic book process talk these days, and like a lot of things that are very like this is how I make stuff, and very I don't oh, know, yeah. kind of almost like creative nuts and bolts like i kind of like overdo myself sometimes listening to the big ideas and the the philosophies and the the esoteric talks and stuff like that mm -hmm. i'm also reading some really big books right now and i find when i'm reading books about like the esoteric and stuff like that i have trouble listening and consuming it all the time i want to switch it up so i'll go back to like just listening to people talk about comics or fast food or stupid shit that like i like to just kind of <laughs> you know have in a background and stuff but uh i i think it's like super interesting how there's definitely something to the way that we consume these things and the way that like having a having somebody like you do what you do makes it so people i think one get introduced to a lot of books they would have never been introduced to but there's probably a lot of people that now will never read books because they're like oh i got it like i heard this guy like there's so many books that i've like listened to people talk about on podcasts and be like got it not going to need to pick that one up anymore and i think that's like a not a bad thing like i'm not saying that is mm -hmm. like it like you know i think it's a a interesting statement on the way that we consume information and culture and i do it like i'm saying i do it myself obviously but yeah do you ever think about that when you're like picking books to to like i want to get this book out there but i wonder how many people are just going to listen to this and be like nope i'm not going any further <laughs> well you've heard in some of the episodes that i always end with some sort of teaser yeah, i don't give everybody true. all the information but then i also give them an idea of what else is in the book and a reason for them to go pick it up yeah, yeah. Do you still prefer physical books? Absolutely. I have a couple right now that are digital, and it could just be, you know, out of sight, out of mind, but I always forget that I have them. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but I, I very much appreciate having a physical book with a physical page to turn. And I can't remember, I, it may have been your podcast, or it was one, someone in our group, fan group, uh, talking about how you have to have a dog-eared page mm -hmm. and then that becomes a part of the history of the book itself. And when yeah. you get that book secondhand, you see where other people have marked what they wanted to remember or where they stopped reading. Yeah, that was a rap I uh, I stole from uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. He was talking about it on a pod, random magic podcast. I sometimes I'll just like search his name in the podcast apps and see if he's done any <laughs> random interviews because like he's one of those dudes I just like to listen to talk. Like he just has like that mm -hmm. very very good voice. Very uh, one of those dudes is really good with words. But he was talking about how he prefers. Like he reads a lot of digital books because they're just better that way, like it, or because they're so much more accessible and whatnot. Oh, yeah. But he still prefers that physical book because he can actually like ingest it. And when he wants to actually 
learn something and really digest it. It has to be a physical book because he feels like there's something like magical about that interaction with dog earing the pages and writing in the the marginalia. And he says he gets like mad at himself because he loves these books and he's like killing them to ingest <laughs> them because he's got to write all over them. And I'm like, that's beautiful. That's a that's like creative reading, you know, like it's, oh, it's a whole other a thing that people people don't talk about as much and i think that that's like uh half of my creative work when you know i'm mainly a visual artist but like half of that i still say is like the stuff i read and consume like we are kind of like just filtering in and out what we're taking in so like i think the more you can have like a tactile reading experience and that kind of like, I, I love that idea of like killing your books to ingest it. I think that's so, so pretty. And like, and then to like take that and share it with the world, be like, okay, now I'm giving this to a used bookstore for someone else to like pick up and read these weird marginalia notes and like things mm -hmm. like that, that I think are really special. Well, the adage, you are what you eat, isn't just about food. It's everything that you consume, you know? It's so true. It's so true. Dude, the other thing he said in that podcast that I really love that sounds kind of like I should have heard it before, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but he, they, the interviewer remarked all the books behind him, and there, and, he, and she said something about, do you ever feel like a fraud because like, you haven't read all of those books, or like is it intimidating having all those books and not having read them all? And he's like no that's just like potential there's just like of course i haven't mm. read all those books there's just endless potential sitting behind me i can at any time there's something for me to grab and i'm like that's beautiful like libraries are supposed to be this like endless potential of things these en endless gateways and portals and like i kind of think about that like i have tons of books sitting behind me that i've never read and like have looked through a million times but like uh, like uh, well, I was talking about those golden age comics. So many of those comics oh, I have yeah. stared at and but have read like three word balloons and been like, nope, not getting, not reading these things. <laughs> these are, these are for looking. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. I, I love books. I think there's something really special about them. I think I'm going to use that description from now on. Instead of the stack of shame, it's going to be <laughs> the pile of potential. I love it. I love it. That's very uh, golden that, age comics alliteration yes, there. Yes. W were you a comics kid? Did you did you uh, read comics growing up or to have access to them on that farm? Uh, believe it or not. Yes, we had a comic shop in town and a bookstore that carried a pretty good selection. Um, I really grew up on X-Men and then when the 90s X-Men cartoon came out, that was it. Oh, I yeah. was hooked. So awesome. I, I definitely cut my teeth on that. But I also was able to get access to the reprints of the old EC comics. Oh, yeah. So That's weird beautiful. fantasy, weird science, uh, Tales from the Crypt, all of those. In the 90s, when those were on the racks with regular Marvel and DC, that was such a special time. Like when they were yeah. being reprinted and still being put out on like, yeah, there was and that was before I went to a comic book store. I've only heard of this time when like I, I bought so many of those uh, EC comics. And I mean, uh, literally have these Russ Cochran reprints hey, sitting on yeah. my drawing table at all times, like whether it's Tales from the Crypt or Mad or like they're they're probably my favorite comics in general ever. And just like my favorite art because they are like talk about my marginalia and that like magic of like killing the thing you're working on like they mm -hmm. did not give a fuck about what they had to do to make that thing <laughs> print and like the amount of work they would put like you see these 
little books that we would pick up the reprints right that they were putting out mm -hmm. that were colored really poorly and like it's really small printing and like the inks all bled and then they put out these reprints of like the uh artist editions where it's the black and white artwork and you see oh, yeah. how much line work jack davis is putting down you see how much like blood sweat and tears that just print like shit like they're putting like everything into these pages for them to be yeah. reproduced in absolute like garbage format and there's something beautiful about that there's something that's like again like that magic of some somebody putting like way more than has to be put into and it just it stopped like like those con that comic language that that aesthetic everything just went away once the whole uh what's called comics authority came out and everything and oh yeah the the since uh what's that dude's name that <clears throat> made that killed the whole thing god damn it i should really know this but now it's just not in my brain because my brain's not working great right now <laughs> <laughs> well i was but, i was around for a weird transition in the 90s too because we saw that switch from uh, watercolor and hand-painted comic panels yeah. to digital art Yes. And that transition was the awkward. Gray, at first. murky. Oh, dude, it's still rough sometimes. I'll tell you. Like, yeah. it's some, but no, you're right. Like, those 90s comics are brutal. Like, the blue line artwork color separation is fucking magic. Marie Severin, mm -hmm. who did like the majority of this stuff and is also like an amazing cartoonist on her own right. I just found out that she did this run of Muppet Babies comics. That's one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Um, oh, wow. I, have a new, I have a new thing to dig through uh, dollar bins for. That is going to be <laughs> what my, my goal. But the, that comic coloring method was like an art of its own. Like you said, like it's and mm -hmm. when it went from that to the Photoshop and they had this unlimited box of crowns to work with metaphorically, yes. it was too much for them. It was like, like, like the, cause the car, the, and it's so interesting. I think about this stuff all, all the time because the reason that comics were reproduced the way they are, like in that heavy black line, was mm -hmm. because of the printing technology at the time. That was the only way you could make clear artwork is using what they call, but it was, it was black line reproduction, right? That's what it was right. called. So, like, at the color was meant to sit under the black line. So now they have this computer, but they have this old method of working and they're applying these gradients and these murky, muddy brown colors that mm -hmm. are fighting this black line they're not they're not supporting the black line they're like they're they're hitting each other in this weird way and it's like marshall McLuhan used to say have this rap that i loved about how the medium that comes before just mimics or the medium that comes after just mimics the medium that comes before for the first like 50 years. Like it takes a long time oh, yeah. for a new medium to find its feet. Like TV was just plays on screen for a long time until the medium found its own voice. And like, Within those mediums, the same thing happens with techniques and comics was experiencing that where like the comics had this new, beautiful tool, but it was applying the old technique and using the tool improperly. And like, right. Even to this day, honestly, comics don't have to be inked anymore. Like comics could just be penciled. Like, like uh, one of my favorite current uh, artists is, um, oh man, well, my brain is just like not working at all right now, uh, Frank Quitely. And Frank Quitely doesn't ink anymore. Like it's all pencils. And then he takes the oh, pencils okay. and he scans and he bumps up the contrast and then yes. it's digital colors that he works with on, you know, and 
the pencil doesn't fight the color. It doesn't fight. It's mm-hmm. all airy and light. And like, there's, so there's, it just takes a while for people to get it. But it's interesting to me how those transitions happen and whatnot. I don't even know how we started down that. But do you still read comics? <laughs> Believe it or not, no. I have not picked up a comic in quite some time. I think the last one I read was, uh, oh man. It was back when Dark Horse got the Conan series. And I was collecting that for about three years because it was Kurt Busiek and uh, Carrie Nord. I actually have issue zero hanging up on my wall right here. That's awesome. Again, like you were saying, they have the pencils over top of the colors. And they had a very select color palette that was very oil color based. So you got this old feeling and even just the pencils and the, the, the line work and the colors by itself gave you the feeling of Conan without even reading the words on the page. And I love that. Absolutely. That's beautiful. So what do you read these days outside of podcast reading stuff? Do you read for fun or just for, just for pleasure or is it all just for the podcast at this point? No, I, I read mostly fantasy books because I don't know. Nonfiction. Eh, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, if there's a, a topic I'm interested in, I'll absolutely read it. If there's a new book about dinosaurs on like an adult level, yes, I will read that. But uh, mostly just sci-fi fantasy. Uh, the quality of sci-fi books has really improved quite a bit since like really? the 80s and 90s when I grew up. It was still, I mean, at that time it was basically fantasy in space. Or it was so far extreme that it was hard to translate onto page. Yeah. So a lot of sci-fi at that time would have made great television. And we're seeing this now. Great television series and great movies. But on page, it's not the easiest thing to read because you have these these nonsense terms that they created up for the the show or for for the book. And that doesn't convey what's in the author's mind as well. Yeah, but on the other hand, yeah. that leaves it vague enough for you to create as you're reading it. But and I kind of preferred that little bit of extra detail. Yeah, totally, totally. And that like that invitation to use your imagination makes those worlds so much more real. Like it really mm-hmm. is a medium specific thing. It's funny. I was listening to a random Terrence McKenna rant uh, earlier today while cooking dinner. And he was talking about how watching is one of the worst things humans ever figured out how to do. Like watching mm-hmm. things is like a dirty act that like we, 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 <laughs> we, we make ourselves and like he goes all over, but he uses TV as a big one about how, how much more, you know, beneficial, for the imagination reading is or like looking at a piece of artwork is mm-hmm. than uh, watching TV and like it was very interesting to me in the way that like now what how things are being watched is a whole nother level of uh, consuming and a whole different in a whole different way and again I think it goes back to that like social media the inner the internet i'll say hasn't found its foot it's still like mimicking old uh old methods and it's still in that Mm -hmm. like thing marshall McLuhan was talking about where it hasn't found its footing to like being its own thing yet like it's still kind of forming and whatnot so for some reason i think that almost gives off like a car wreck where we all want to watch it even more you know what i mean like we want to watch this thing find its footing and now like it's sucking us in in a very 
in a more negative way than just a like a, a uh, passive way. I mean, I'll admit there's a few TV series that where I didn't even like it, but after a few episodes, I was so invested, I just wanted to see where it went and how it ended. Yeah. And then totally. when it did end, I was like, well, there's 12 hours of my life I won't get back. <laughs> but true. it hooked me. I don't, I can't yeah. even put into words what it was about those shows, but I just, I was invested. It's true. And, you I know, miss- I, I was going to say Go something ahead. about um, modern television being more vir- voyeuristic. Sorry, words are failing me tonight. It's, there, it's more voyeuristic than what we grew up with. But at the same time, our parents would say the same thing. Uh And like it's the television networks just keep pushing boundaries. They go further and further and further. And there's a lot of things that we see on TV now that we wouldn't see if it were real life. Totally. And what sucks is I think it all comes down to fucking money and commerce. And like, you know, I think it all comes down to what's what's going to like when you find out that like It's a Wonderful Life wasn't supposed to be a Christmas movie. It was just a Christmas movie because the TV channel had the rights to air that during Christmas. Like, oh, nothing oh, it didn't even made. have the rights. The, the copyright ran out. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, I knew there yeah. was something like that. Like nothing is like artfully done all the way like there's always this commerce that comes in in the the modern day of how like Mm -hmm. these things get presented in these ways and like that's the stuff that makes me super interested about that reflection as far as like what is a a true cultural reflection and what is like a very um a very narrow kind of capitalist reflection of what's going on in the, Mm -hmm. in the world. And I think they're two different things. Like, and that's something I actually wanted to ask you with how much you've read about different times in history and stuff. Is that a consistent thing? Like this kind of battle between like, you know, culture and economics and such, is that something that's always been a part of, uh, of humans that you've, that you've noticed? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, as long as people were, well, as long as artists have been able to produce facsimiles of human life, there's been that trade-off. I mean, look at the the Venus of Willendorf. I mean, maybe someone made that for himself. Probably not. Probably not. Most likely, and I'm going to venture, it was probably a dude who made this. um, (laughs) Carved this, this voluptuous woman out of stone or maybe bone i'm not sure offhand right now but um you know he carved that and he turned around to his buddies and says hey check this out (laughs) and then every time they got around the campfire they were like hey steve where's that figure you carved yeah (laughs) it's very true it's very and then like we saw in ancient rome it was the same thing they just started doing the illustrations in frescoes or painting them on the pots or uh, oil lamps, believe it or not, are pretty significant for different art styles and a good way to see the popular depiction of certain things like gladiators. Really? Gladiator art is weird. Like it's on mosaics and frescoes and everything because those are some of the most popular depictions that we have of them. But there's also utilitarian things, just like clay oil lamps that were mass produced and had a specific gladiator type embossed on the surface. And because they were so mass produced, we know at a certain time period 
how that gladiator was dressed and and armed for combat. And like most things, like football, think of football uh, padding and everything, how it has changed over the years. We started out yeah. with the leatherhead helmet, and now we have <laughs> basically full body armor with uh, impact padding and, and impact foam. But if you take a snapshot of a certain time period and you look at like a football card from the 60s, that gives you a perfect snapshot of a time that it, it I don't even have words for it. It's, it's a snapshot of it, that sport at that time and how it was depicted in popular culture. And and what's so beautiful about that is if you dig down to the stories of why they wear the pads, that like, it says so much more about society than just that sport. Like that's, oh yeah, is a is a giant. Everything is just so reflective, and it's, that's one of my favorite things about like I think about the push and pull between like the construction and deconstruction of mythologies throughout culture. Right. Like there's mm -hmm. one of my favorite Ram Dass raps is he talks about how like all, and this was, I think this one was in the eighties in the late eighties about how all there's all these storylines coming to an end. And he starts with like the American dream. Like we are all going to get this like house and like that was coming to an end in the sixties. So like people mm. woke up that that wasn't a thing, but then it was still kind of trickling around. And then he goes through up, until the current day about these giant cultural mythologies that we all believed in but aren't quite true anymore and his whole point was like what's the next one that's going to go away like what's the, what's the next deteriorating one and what's yeah. the next one we're going to build more importantly like what are we building here what are we what are we putting back together like all of these things are disintegrating and at the end of the day they're doing it because they're supposed to but we're the ones in charge of like making the new ones so like what let's you know let's wrap and, and we are at the very beginning of that reconstruction period and it's wonderful to see it yeah, i think one of the, the biggest examples i could think of is when they decided to put sacagawea and her child on the gold dollar coin yeah. now no one uses those coins but it was a positive portrayal of someone who made a great sacrifice on behalf of America. Yeah. Regardless absolutely. of the popular mythology around all of that. But it was it was one of the first times in my life that I remember seeing something portraying a Native American in a positive light that wasn't a stereotype. Yes. Yeah. That's huge. And I think there is more of that. It's interesting like that you said that particularly because my kids just started watching this show that's called Spirit Rangers. I think it's on mm -hmm. Netflix. I can't remember exactly. And it's all native uh, folklore stories. Ooh. It's all based. And I was like, this let me let's look at this and then like so it's all written by indigenous people and it's all like very very methodically researched and like when they start doing storylines i'll just like look real quick and i'm like oh this is pretty accurate to like the beliefs of the eagle in the culture that they're yeah. talking about and they're using very so my kids are having a much more realistic introduction to native culture that's being portrayed by native people where mm -hmm. like, you know, my introduction to, to, uh, you know, native people are by Peter Pan or something like that, you know, like, oh, something yeah. Where yeah, it was, that was like, yeah, exactly. So like the, those, th and like he has, my kids are so much smarter about those things in general, as far as like, not just the, the cultural uh, progression and things, but like, 
the way that it, indigenous and native people are more connected and talk more intelligently about nature they connect with mm -hmm. that more than anything and like my my kids will come tell me like my my six-year-old is really into uh egypt right now and he's really into mushrooms and nothing to do with me like these are two very <laughs> things that he just got into the egypt is from a lego uh, lego set that he really wants there's a pyramid of giza lego set that he like is obsessed oh, with okay. like a little out of the price range right now unfortunately for the for the guy they're like 400 lego sets you know, like, uh, yeah, that's like, yeah. but yeah, uh, someday we're, we're working on it. Um, but <laughs> he's super into to that. And the mushrooms, he's super into Mario right now. And there's so mm. much mushroom stuff that he's been fascinated. So he was talking to me about how, you know, mushrooms communicate with trees and how like they all help each other. Like, you know, and I'm like, dude, that's so cool that you're talking that that's so true. And like, I didn't know that when I was your age at all. I had, like, oh, yeah. I, I was brought up that plants fight for existence and trees battle their way up in the canopy and they don't look, you know, it's the, the survival of the fittest all the way up and down and all of that stuff. And like the kids are being brought up with something that's more accurate and more kind. And that's special to me. Like, I love when the kind of like kindness and connection can like syncs up with the scientific and thing that's really happening out there because i think the smartest people all agree that there's like there's a a basis of love that's beyond the word that we use there's something there's mm -hmm. a, there's an actual force in the world that is love and it's not the like colloquial use that we have whether it's familial or friends or romantic it's something else and mm -hmm. i think little things like how those mushrooms and trees sync up and stuff show that and i love that kids are being introduced to those concepts at a younger age yeah it's a level of connection that we really don't have a word for love yeah. is is it's still pretty nebulous when it's all said and done. <laughs> and we have very, it's nebulous, but we have specific instances where we apply it. Yeah. But it doesn't encapsulate what we're trying to say, which is very strange in itself. It really is. It is. Do you think about linguistics a lot? Sometimes. Uh, it wasn't <laughs> a, yeah, I know that's a, that's, again, very vague. It didn't really, I got into linguistics for a very nerdy reason. I like that. When I was younger and just started Dungeons and Dragons, I was the dungeon master. So I had to come up with various words to describe the same scene over and over and over again. <laughs> oh, you walk into a dungeon. What's there? Uh, okay, well, there's stone. And yeah, so I had to start using a thesaurus pretty heavily. And luckily, it was about the time that uh, the internet access was around and I could use online thesauruses instead of a giant tome. But mm -hmm. yeah, um, that's what got me into linguistics and how words, we have specific words for specific instances for a reason. And we seem to have lost a lot of that. But like you said, the younger generation is picking up on that. Yeah. It's, you know, I've always been fascinated by the idea that different cultures have different, like, whether it's emotional experiences or they experience mm -hmm. colors based on the language that they have. And I think there's like, there, there's things like there's ideas like that, that allow you to understand that, like, we can control the 
language is a way to control the way we view the world. And the more we yes. invest in that is really important. Like I've always, my kid has a um, articulation delay, they call it. And I've been really mm -hmm. trying not to use those words around him or not because it's not a delay and he doesn't have trouble articulating his ideas. He just doesn't speak in the same way that like everybody else does at this certain time, but he communicates in his own way. And I think it's really important the words that we use, whether it's applied to things like that or like attention deficit disorder, I think is a real bullshit one because people mm -hmm. with ADD, it's not a disorder. They just interact with attention differently. And it is a thing that is different and causes people to interact with the world differently. It's not that it's not a thing. I just think it's bullshit that we call these things disorders when it's just people being people. <laughs> and like, yeah, we're just yeah. trying to force people in a box and like, you know, say, you know, you have to do this. And this is the way we do things here. And I, the more that we can have open I don't know, language like that, I've seen have an impact on like my kid and like things like things along those lines where I'm like, oh, it's way more real than I even thought it was. So I've been thinking a lot about just like mm -hmm. how important words are. <laughs> so I can't remember if I released it as a blog or if it was one of my early patron exclusive episodes. I actually need to re-record it for the uh, esoteric footnotes. And it was about language and words and how words are important. And I started it out saying, okay, I need a tool that turns a screw that has a flat tip and a handle and it's a long metal bar. And I just can't remember what the word is. <laughs> and it's like knowing, just knowing the word for what you're trying to articulate is so important. Mm -hmm. And we see that especially in, well, even in art, like you need a specific tool for a job. You need a, a an instrument. What is that? You yes. don't even know what to Google at this point because you can't, you just have to describe it. Yes. And it's amazing how having a single word can be so impactful on whatever it is you're doing. Dude, absolutely. And that highlights like my favorite part of being a human, like words are ideas manifested. Like words came about because us weird monkeys had these <laughs> reflective ideas that we had to communicate to one another. And the way that we decided the most effective way to communicate these weird things that were popping in and out of our brains was words. And like the, the one thing that I've always loved to listen to Terrence McKenna talk about is how there was this giant chunk of history where our brains were kind of close to evolved as they are now, but we just didn't have language. Like we existed mm -hmm. with the consciousness is that that's weird way of saying consciousness, but the, we existed <laughs> with like our current setup, but didn't have the technology or the tool of language. And that the more that that tool came into play, that's like one of the biggest shifts in the evolution mm -hmm. of humankind and like how important that tool is. And it comes down to like, this idea that I love that we are just here to catch ideas and to, to be idea farms and the best way to express those ideas in a lot of ways right now is words, but that's just for right now. Like one of the other things I love listening to Terrence talk about is how the mushroom shows us how inadequate m words are sometimes in trying mm -hmm. to convey things. And we have to go past the word at some point and get to a, a real 
true essence and be able to can, to explain things beyond just like these cultural contexts of stuff. And I'm like that that's a whole nother a whole nother thing I love to think about. But just the idea that we existed for so long without words is so man talk about something that just kind of blows your mind for a little bit <laughs> yeah it's like the thought experiment how do you explain the color blue to someone who's colorblind <laughs> exactly and that leads to one of my favorite stories and yes i i think it may have been your show again where yes hp lovecraft horrible person fantastic author and created some incredible concepts Absolutely. one of my favorite stories of his was color out of space Oh, yeah. And regardless of what else happened, it was how he tried to describe a color that doesn't exist. And if I remember, he said it was a purplish green, which that in itself just shatters your brain trying to comprehend that. Yeah, no, it's not supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's beautiful. And I think there's like, there's something special about sitting in those moments of a kind of incomprehensibleness like that's something that i think Mm -hmm. humans in general are meant to do we're meant to kind of sit in paradox and we're meant to like it's kind of one of our superpowers is this like is this being able to live in a in a dichotomy and to be able to like i mean i really feel like there's something special about the fact that we are this like spiritual thing in a meat in a meat sack like there's we're yeah. not one or the other we're this like mix of the two and i think that's why you get the the idea that like changing and our experiences with time is what's so special about what we do as humans and that the fact that like we're in these like kind of meat suits so that we can change and experience change in a physical way and experience time in a linear way that you know might not be the reality but we're here to to play that game and there's something magic to playing that linear time game and that that uh creation and decay and all of that like i think it's something something really special to it <laughs> Are you ready for a very strange metaphor that goes back to something we talked about previously? Please. You mentioned that we are imperfect creatures in a meat suit, but we're spiritual entities and we're just trying to observe and absorb and interact. It's very similar to the Golden Age comics. They're trying to convey a story and a message with a limited uh, color palette and limited printing capabilities and even the materials they printed on that was limited. Yes. So you couldn't 100%. use the same amount of saturation because it would bleed through the page. Dude, that's a beautiful. You just gave me goosebumps there, Jason. That is, be- <laughs> that is absolutely beautiful. I love that. And you know what? We're at an hour here already. And I feel like I'm not going to come up with a better way to wrap this conversation up than what you just did there. So I think we should start. I have like two other things that I wanted to ask you, though, before I let you go. Yeah, go One, for it since we just kind of touched on time, what, like, in all the stuff that you've done via the podcast and your regular history stuff, what's your mm-hmm. take on time? Like, what do you feel? Like, you know, our mutual friend Vuku we've talked about doesn't believe in history. I don't know if he's talked to you about that, but he yes. thinks history is, is not a thing. <laughs> and I, I love those ideas and stuff. But as a historian, how do you feel about the wobbliness of time? Not to give you a teaser, but there should be an episode coming out tonight of my show where I talk to Vuk about that very thing. 
Oh, great, great. That's perfect. This is coming out tomorrow, so that's in. That'll be perfect. That's how. That's yeah. That'll be a great follow up. That's wonderful. Well, I I won't. Don't spoil it. Everyone, go check. I'll put the link into the podcast, and everyone go listen to that because yeah, Vuk's got some really interesting ideas. But it, in general, it's something I'm always fascinated by because I definitely think. I've been reading a uh, Mitch Horowitz's new book. I'm I'm having him on soon. He sent me an early copy, and I've been reading. It's a, a essentially a study of the of occult history, starting with Egypt all the way up to modern day. Oh wow! Right? And like it's it's giant. It's been it's one of the reasons I've been slow at recording new interviews because I've been trucking through this. But one of the coolest things about it is how much time plays. Like all these different people are just having these weird experiences with time and framing it in different ways. And I'm like, there's something really special there. There's something special to the way that we interact with the idea of time. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's always always interesting to me to ask other people that are historically minded. <laughs> well, I can give you a summary that doesn't spoil anything. I like that. I don't think time really exists except for what is happening right now and what has happened but we don't know what has happened the past is basically mythology regardless of what we're talking about we are making our best guesses on evidence that we have and that evidence could be an artifact it could be someone's writings their personal reflections but even that is just one person's interpretation of a single event so So everything that is history is one big story. Yes. And it's so true. One of my favorite things that Mike Clellan said to me when I had him on was that he would love to hear history from like the raving mad lunatic in Greece. Like everything we have <laughs> is from like, you know, these very prestigious thinkers and these, these higher ups in the society. And he's like, what were like the homeless dudes in Greece? Like, you know, like that, yeah. I'm like, that's a really interesting perspective. And I agree that would never to be happening. Uh, but maybe we could ask AI to, to write a, uh, comprehensive oh uh, let's not do that no no (laughs) i have very strong opinions on ai generated stuff and it's not none of it's good oh yeah no i'm i'm with you and uh i'm with you in all the ways it's not good and all the ways i think it can be uh it's way overblown and it's good oh man i have so that's a whole other thing we can talk about that i have a lot of new thoughts on these days that (laughs) i i have some really close friends that are much more successful artists than I am that were just invited to a conference with Adobe and got to see some things that will be rolling out with some new Photoshop things and stuff mm-hmm. that is very, very frightening as far as like being a professional artist, but also kind of liberating and something that I like, I think is going to, um, I think it's going like a, a lot of the shit people are talking about as far as people job disruption and stuff that'll all kind of happen and shake up like it always does it's like mm-hmm. jobs get disrupted they get displaced they're not going away they're just going to get moved around and all that stuff like, yeah that shit i'm not worried about but what i think this stuff will do will really put to bed the fact that this shit isn't consciousness that this isn't like a the, no one has to worry about that Ooh. like that like the stuff that i'm seeing from uh the visual side of things is like it lands in that camp actually again i think it was uh, uh jeff kripal who said this where 
people are confusing the cognitive abilities of these things and consciousness. And like he explained it with, he explained it with like the cell phone, which is, you know, the cognitive abilities and the Wi-Fi the cell phone needs to connect to that is the consciousness. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that I'm hearing about that's going to be coming out through Adobe, it's all cognitive and it puts the cognitive on the sleeve. So it could Mm. like have this ability to lessen that fear that the consciousness, if it's looked at right, it's interesting. It was one of those things like that. I I'm very interested in the progression of it, obviously as somebody who works in the visual arts in a lot of ways, but uh, Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in how it affects culture. And that's something that like, I think uh, is going I don't think it's going to have the impact in the way that people are talking about it to have the impact, if that makes sense. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's a temporary thing, the impact that we're seeing. Yes. But and conversely, very- conversely, okay. I have someone who is, due to physical limitations, not able to create art. And then AI art comes around and she is able to create what's in her mind. Yes, and that's amazing. dude. I was saying this yesterday to somebody I work with because they're making a joke. I was doing something kind of stupid and they're like, don't fuck up your hands. Like you need your hands. And I'm like, well, luckily I have 38 years worth of artwork. I can load into an AI generator Mm -hmm. and I can keep making artwork forever to spend knock on wood. I'm not like jinxing myself here and like going (laughs) there, but like that is one thing I thought about where like I have enough information where I could use these tools to like, keep creating if I ever do because that has always been something that I love about cartooning is you see these cartoonists that die at their drawing table. they can do it forever like yeah and they never like even like Charles Schultz like as his line gets wobblier his stories get more beautiful and he just incorporates mm-hmm. it into the artwork and that's always been a beautiful thing and I, I AI allows to take that to a whole nother world so I think there's like some really cool things like that that I never thought about until recently it's funny you brought that up <laughs> yeah yeah, and until you said that line, I never even thought about it either. Growing up, my dad, he would like stop me from doing certain things and he'd be like, you're an artist. Don't fuck up your hands. Yeah, it's funny, and right? It's like, well, I don't really have much of a choice. This is a job that needs done. So, you yep, know. yep. Yeah, no, exactly. I was in the same situation, but it was it's the type of thing that like. I think that all of these conversations, like whether it's AI or any of these things that like are almost done to death at this point. Uh, At least there's a way that it's making people think weirder about stuff. And I think the fact that people are even just thinking about what consciousness is on a more mass scale is really special. Like, I think that's a, that's a sign of a shift that is different and something that like, Mm -hmm. it's a very important time for like creatives and artists right now, because I think we can help lead these things if we do it right. If we really do like kind of uh, put our money where our mouth is and like, you know, I believe stories and mythology shape everything. So like Mm I am trying to very hard put out the stories I would want to see shape things. And I think that everybody should do their own. And eventually it'll just be this mass explosion of like creativity. Like I think imagination is the thing that's going, it's always saved us and has always been like our, our ace in the, in the hole. And like, it's going to be the thing that gets us out of this. If anything does like, as far as the, the progression of the human, the humankind. (laughs) Well, something you just said triggered another thought to me is that, the conversation of AI and consciousness is very similar to what we're seeing with the UFO hearings. Oh yeah. It's forcing these discussions to the public. 
Mm-hmm. It's making people who are not otherwise engaged in this talk about it. And the two are related. Like, I don't think the two are separate. I think the fact that these conversations are happening simultaneously, it, it, it there's, there's something behind that. You know what I mean? And not mm-hmm. just that, but like the fact that I'll swipe over to my newsfeed and it'll be like, scientists just confirmed that we have a sixth sense. And that's just like ABC News or something. Or like yeah. the, there'll be a, like the Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize winners that uh, wanted a, about like time not being local and essentially proving that th- this year or last year. Like there's all these little things that are kind of bubbling up to this, uh, what uh, Eric Davis calls the global, the global weirdening that i think is a very appropriate term <laughs> yeah. like like it for good or for bad shit is getting weirder and i think that like one of the reasons i think people are drawn to whether it's paranormal things or the esoteric is because we are being drawn to live in a more weird state more constantly. And even if we don't know it, even if it's subconsciously, the more we listen to ghost stories or cryptid stories or UFO stories or psychedelic stories, it's all getting us more comfortable with being more open to different experiences. And that's Mm -hmm. what we need to be. We need to be flexible, squishy little people in 2023. (laughs) Like we can't, we can't be hard and fast with anything these days. Like you have to be flexible. And I think, that's one of the things that like again sitting in that paradox like sitting in in the fact that like you know something is completely real and unreal at the same time it it trains you for that for lack of mm-hmm. a better word <laughs> but in the end everything is perfect everything is perfect exactly dude you're good at this we're gonna wrap it up there because <laughs> i said the last one we'll wrap it up and then that was a whole bunch of rambling that i sometimes as it gets towards the end and i really get into these things i realize i ramble a lot more and i'm like i need to like try and be more succinct you just that was a perfect way to wrap that up jason the last well, you thing also I, was said, ask you, you, I was gonna say you had two questions what was the number or the second one have you ever read tyrant steve Bissett's uh dinosaur comic no, I haven't. Okay, I need to send it to you. It's the most, so like, it's never been finished. He was working with paleontologists the whole way through. It's the most beautifully drawn dinosaurs I've ever seen in my life. And then he stops and like changes the artwork as new scientific discoveries are coming in. Whole thing. It's a beautiful story. I'll, I'll send you a link. You'll love it. Sounds it's, great. It's, yeah, it's the most, uh, it's my, it's the story of a baby T-Rex being born and it's all done in comics and it's the, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. That was it. I just had to ask that because I meant to forever ago when we were talking about dinosaurs <laughs> and comics, and <laughs> but yeah, dude, thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight. This was beautiful. Is there anything else you want to uh, end on here or do you just want to tell people where to find the podcast or anything else you would like to share? Well, you can find me online and any podcasting service at Esoteric Book Club. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so through Instagram or Facebook or now Threads. Yes, do it. Awesome. Well, I'm going to link all that stuff in the show notes. And yeah, thank you again. Everybody check out the Esoteric Book Club. It's been a really fun listen. Like I said, I'm working through and I'm glad I still have a good chunk to go because I... It's one of those things, it seems harder than ever to find podcasts that I can really get into these days. And there's more podcasts than ever, so you wouldn't think that's the thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the downside with newer podcasts. You get really into it, and then you catch up. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. It's nice to have a deep uh, history to go through there. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jason. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. (laughs) 